0: What's the meaningful to have lung function better means you can do more. And our patients are coming back and telling us, yes, these medications work. I can do more with my life.
1: Hey there, and welcome to Poncast. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Antonio Ansueto. He's a pulmonary and critical care physician from UT Health and a contributor to the most recent Gold Guidelines Update. Today, we also have with us John Heisler, of course, Luisa Bozard. She's one of our pulmonary PAs, and we have Dr. Jermaine Jackson, one of our pulmonary and critical care physicians.
2: I'm excited to have Louisa and Jermaine on the show to help us interview Dr. Anzueto because both of them have been instrumental in a lot of our pulmonary initiatives over the past several years. Louisa is a huge contributor to our COPD readmission rate committee and Jermaine Jackson contributes to basically every initiative we have in our pulmonary critical care division. So thanks you guys for helping us interview Dr. Anzueto.
1: We just got done with a fantastic grand rounds about COPD, which is a very broad topic. And I think today we're going to get a little bit more granular, a little bit more specific about quality, some asthma COPD overlap, and some eosinophilic syndromes, and whether we should be considering dual therapy or triple therapy in patients with moderate to severe COPD. So, Dr. Ansueto, can we start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Uh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here with you all. So, I'm Antonio Anzueto, I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Texas in San Antonio, and I also am the section chief at the South Takes a Veteran Healthcare System. Over the last 25 years of my career, I was trying to figure it out, you know, why should I do my life? And I thought maybe COPD will be an interesting area to get involved as well as to see what can we do for our patients. So I have been working in COPD for all this time.
1: So I want to start by asking you, recently the gold guidelines were changed in 2017 and word on the street is that you may have had a little bit to do with that. Can you talk about changing severity of COPD based on airflow limitation to now being based on exacerbation history and severity of symptoms? Do you think that was a good move? How has that changed the game in COPD?
0: So, in the goal, the global initiative COPD, what we have done, we've been trying to kind of update that information based on what the data that we have. Uh, you know, COPD has been very exciting, a significant amount of research and information that has emerged. So this change that we did in the Gold Committee the recommendation is not to ignore lung function. It's to tell you, yeah, you make a diagnosis, you look at your spirometry. but what determines how you treat your patient has to do based on their symptoms and has to do on the risk of exacerbation. Because we know now we have patients who had very bad COPD and their symptoms are are very small amount of symptoms when you would quantify. So we we tell clinicians, yes, it's important for you to do a spirometry, but talk to your patient, find out how symptomatic they are. And we recommend to use an objective tool. So you want to use like a Disney scale. This scale is one to three. Are I, I you short-winded walking flat, going up the stairs? And those patients who are symptomatic, they clearly will need to have different therapies to the patients who are not symptomatic. And the same is the case of patients who have exacerbations, either hospitalized or treated as an outpatient.
1: So the idea is Potentially tailoring therapy more specifically to the patient as opposed to the numbers.
0: Yeah, and it's like I can tell Mr. Smith, ah, your fev one is three hundred miles higher and your numbers look better, but he or she doesn't care. They want to feel better. Can I feel better? Can I do more? The most interesting part of happening in COPD is how how this concept of emerging with the availability of the fixed lava-lama combination inhalers. The FDA told the companies when they were developing these medications, you know, you can do studies, show me that the fixed combination is better, or you can go deeper, and you can try to understand how these medications impact the patient's quality of life, exercise capacity. And we are seeing data that is striking and patients. Symptoms improve, exercise capacity is improving. So we're going on in the next stage.
1: I think that dovetails really nicely into this idea of the frequent exacerbator. Can you talk some about the phenotype of the frequent COPD exacerbator patient?
0: So the frequent exacerbator term came in the mid-2000s when we did have patients who had frequent exacerbations. Mr. Smith is going to be in the office, November, December, January, mm-hmm. he will keep calm, and in between that, he will go into the hospital. So the individuals who have more than three exacerbations per year. But in 2018, a frequent exacerbator is the person who goes to the hospital once or have more than one exacerbation per year. Because the numbers have significant decrease, as a consequence of the availability of the medications. We have used a clinical term to identify. At the end of the day, we may want to have some biomarker. Do I have a troponin that has impact in the lungs? We don't have that. We have clinical information. We've been doing a very good job if the patient are not having exacerbation. So what to do with that individual who comes? You have to think out of the box. You have to ask why you're having those symptoms. Are you taking your medications? We have to help them with that. We have to think about the individual. Is your gastroesophageal reflux? Is your heart failure? Is something else that are leading for you to have these persistent symptoms?
1: So, if I'm understanding you correctly, it sounds like your definition of a frequent exacerbator would be a patient who technically classifies as group C or group D. Is basically, that right?
0: classifies primarily group D because those patients are symptomatic. You know, it's very interesting when the group Z was created. Are you telling me patient has exacerbations, lung function that was low and had no symptoms? The truth is that 12, 15 publications for 15 different cohorts all over the world found there are people like that. So that's one of the indications to pull the lung function out of that box of the ABCD. You say, oh, this person has to be doing very bad. They're not doing bad. That They feel good, That they are comfortable.
2: Symptoms is what has to drive what you do. I think one of the things that I took home from your talk this morning was just, you reminded me when I first started, we had tons of COPD exacerbations on our service in the hospital all the time. And just a testament to how far the pharmacotherapy and and different treatment options for these patients has come now that you're kind of saying that the COPD exacerbation rate to be a frequent exacerbator quote would be, used to be three and is now down to one. I mean, that's something we see in practice. I mean, Jermaine and Louisa can talk to that more than me, but Uh, kind of gone are the days where there's huge numbers of COPD exacerbators that are there purely for that reason in the hospital.
0: Also, in the hospital, we're seeing patients who have COPD that get admitted. So they get admitted because of pneumonia. They get admitted because of their cardiac condition, the other. And they happen to have COPD. I had a lady that in 2005, her FEV1 was 320 and was 30%. Mm-hmm. She died last year. Mm-hmm. She lived 12 years with an F1 of 300. Patients with COPD are living longer, so we are seeing other conditions. It's not unusual for me in my office to have patients come, oh, I'm short of breath. The lung function is a flat line, it hasn't changed. You have to have something else. We are seeing in our practice a significant increase in lung nodules and lung masses and diagnosis more lung cancer because those individuals are living longer.
1: One of the difficulties for me in looking at the new GOLD guidelines is all of the sort of treatment algorithms for patients, especially with GOLD-C, GOLD-D, COPD, specifically moving from dual therapy to triple therapy. Can you talk some about what would make you decide to add an ICS to a patient with GOLD-D, COPD, and then second, what would make you take that ICS away?
0: The way the table is presented doesn't give you a lot of flexibility and information that will recognize this. We're gonna be proposing algorithm. This is the way you start, what to do next. I had a paper published in the European Respiratory Journal a couple of months ago with a friend. The algorithm is basic patient has symptoms due to the fixed lava lamas. Now they have more than two exacerbations, so them ask about what else. And that leads into when to use in corticosteroids. They have high eosinophils. 300 seems to be the magic number. Those patients receive ICS or pyrotherapy uh, Your patient happened to have a history of asthma and has COPD. They should receive in corticosteroids. And we're finding now in this recent publication on the IMPACT study, 20% of the patients have a history of asthma that were well randomized in the trial. And it's very likely a significant number of them that were taken off of the ICS. That's what we see that group with the long-acting bronchodilators who had more exacerbations. So I will say with will patient with history of asthma, patients who have more than two exacerbations and and or with high eosinophil. Now, what to do with the rest of individuals? If you look at population studies, close to half of patients with group B never exacerbate, they don't have asthma, they are on inhaled corticosteroids. So the study showed you removing inhaled corticosteroids You treat the continued treatment with the fixed lava lama combination, lung function remains stable, they don't exacerbate, the quality of life improves. We are proposing this very
3: dynamic approach. Now, speaking of the group D patients, that's interesting commentary. What about that cohort of patients that you're adding macrolides to? How often do you actually implement that therapy and how efficacious have you found it to be? So I know we have
0: an NIH sponsor a randomized controlled study of acetromycin versus placebo that shows you significant reduction in exacerbations. The best data of that paper is not the tables published in the New England Journal, in the paper original. The best data is in the electronic repository. That is, there is a forest plot that shows you who were the patients who benefit of the macrolide therapy. And there was a subsequent publication by Mail and Hand and the Blue Journal that was in 2010, 2011, uh, that asked a question, who were the patients who benefited Macrolyte? Patients who benefited Macrolyte were patients who were active smokers with FEV1 more than 60% that were not being treated with long-acting bronchodilators. So that really, uh, you know, shaped my concept. I thought that we'll be adding Macrolytes once the patient already has been on maximum pharmacotherapy and we add the macrolides to have a further reduction in exacerbation. And this data show that that's not the case. Now, I use macrolides in patients. To One, they had bronchiectasis. So if the CAT scan shows bronchiectasis and it's part of the diagnosis, there is no question that macrolides will help them. Uh, I use 250 milligrams of acetromycin three times a week. In the New England Journal paper with Rick Albert, they use 500 micrograms every day. They have increased deafness. So and my advice is, if you're going to use long-term microlytes, check their uh, audition before, and I send my patients every three months. The changes in audition doesn't occur progressive. It occurs very sharp. And I had several patients who have became deaf on that. Mm-hmm. So I'm willing to take that risk on the patients who have bronchiectasis. Now, in South Texas, I have to be careful because I have a lot of atypical mycobacteria in patients with bronchiectasis, especially ladies in her mid-70s. They are thin. They have developed bronchiectasis. Some are idiopathic, block bronchiectasis, or after infections. I see a lot of patients who had tuberculosis in the past, and they have uh, a scar. So on those patients, I will not use azithromycin because they are going to need a citromycel later on if they develop
3: a MAC or any form of a typical mycobacteria. You've brought up the eosinophils before, and now you're bringing up atypical mycobacteria. The one question is, what is the role for bronchoscopic evaluation in these patients prior to starting some of the therapies like macrolides? So patients who had bronchiectasis, very often
0: we can make a diagnosis out of their sputum. But then there is those patients who that uh, I bronchectasis and have these kind of ground glass infiltrates and comes and goes and things doesn't need to get better. I always try to do a bronchoscopy in those patients prior to start therapy. Even if I can, I will get biopsies, culture. It's not unusual that we isolate nocardia, we isolate other pathogens that will require completely different therapy, especially those individuals. Uh, it's primarily ladies who come and tell you, you know, I don't have energy, it's hard for me to get up in the morning, uh, I'm not eating, I'm losing weight. Uh, you know, those patients, I try to do an intervention to help me to better identify that what is the the precipitating cause of her condition.
1: If you suspect that a patient has an eosinophilic phenotype, do you check exhaled? Nitric oxide in the clinical setting.
0: Love it! Uh, Thank you, thank you for the question. Because Mm -hmm. what else can I do to get me objective information? Nitric oxide, we have found it to be a very useful tool in asthma. Really help us to uh, assess medication compliance and understand why they are not well controlled or do they need additional therapy? Problem with COPD: If you look at the data, uh, you look at the normal population. You have your graph in your table that are very tight, the means and the standard deviations. The asthma, you can identify threshold levels at where they are not controlled. COPD are all over the place. You can have facing with COPD with very high, you know, and very low, you know, that have very high field. So the big limitation that we have in COPD to use exhaled nitric oxide is I don't know how to interpret the numbers. I don't know what it means that it's very low, and the patient is symptomatic, I don't know what it he means, it's very high, and I give in all, ph- all the pharmacotherapy, and uh, I have, including health corticosteroids, and my patient tells me, I take my medications. But we don't know what that means in COPD. So that's the reason we don't recommend to be used on a regular basis. If your patient happens to have the asthma COPD overlap, by no means, use it. Because that's going to be a very good way to assess how effective are you in their interventions
2: that asthma, COPD overlap. I think it's super muddy, especially for new new providers to know the difference. And yes, it's supposed to be reversibility versus not reversibility. But in practice, we see that's not always the case. And there's this overlap syndrome. So talk to me about your points on that.
0: So what's the difference between COPD and asthma? Uh, The one point we say, oh, acute reversibility. You have acute reversibility, we call it asthma. You have you don't have care reversibility, we call COPD. We know that's not the case. So my analogy is you as a father, you happen to have two children. One is this kid that is outstanding, A-plus all the time. You say, guy I love this guy. Or you have this guy like me that barely made a B's or C's, that always get in trouble. You get tickets, you forget to put gas, and you run out of gas, and barely made it to college. And the truth is that we always have seen this perfect kid has been asthma, and this kid that is not so perfect has been COPD. But this not perfect kid at the end of the day may turn out to be much more interesting, may turn out to give us more challenges of what can we do for them. So uh the first challenge was, how are we going to call it? Asthma-COPD overlap, asthma-COPD syndrome. I think we make a mistake. We should have called it COPD asthma, Syndrome I mean chaos. That would <laughs> will be the, the the initials for that, and it's it's chaos because uh, we don't know what to do on those ones. Those patients do exist, uh, and I'm gonna tell you the Goal and Gina, we create this monster, but we, we we're obligated to talk about this. How we're gonna call them? What we're gonna do with them is very important. Uh, biomarkers help us? Sure, my patient has very high eosinophils, uh, 400, 500, has very high phenol with a history of asthma, uh, and that's that patient has asthma, the primary driven. But the challenge is most of those patients don't have high eos, don't have high phenol, have a history of asthma in the past and happen to smoke, and those are the ones that you have to talk to the patient understand more about his or her condition. Yes, you happen to smoke, but there you have atopy, you have this asthma, you have this allergies. fall into this group of individuals that inhaled corticosteroids should be part of your therapy. If you don't have that, you're going to be fine using non-acting bronchodilators. The one caveat into this is we know now that anticholinergics can be used in asthma. And we do have all these studies done with teotropium in patients with asthma that are not well-controlled, your alternatives are, should I double the dose of steroids? Should I add a LABA? Or should I add an anticholinergic? And the study showed that adding anticholinergic was as good of either double the dose of steroids or adding a to agonist. So at the end of the day, if you have your patient with an inhaled corticosteroid and an anticholinergic, that person is going to be fine. You're going to be able to treat their COPD, you're going to be able to treat their asthma, you're going to be able to cover all the grounds. One of the big objectives, especially patients younger, in their 40s and 50s, that you want to be aggressive in that treatment of asthma, you want to prevent remodeling, you're going to prevent scars and permanent damage to the lungs. With that combination, ICS, anticholinergic, you may be able to achieve that.
1: You mentioned earlier that inhaled corticosteroids are not necessarily active in neutrophilic airway inflammation. If you have a patient who you suspect has asthma-COPD overlap but has normal eosinophils, is an ICS still beneficial in that patient?
0: What drives here is the history of asthma. This is your clinical decision. That's why in the goal and GINA document, we say no word about eosinophils. As a matter of fact, we have a sentence says, we don't know what's the value of eosinophils in making the diagnosis of this condition because the truth is we don't know what's the value. Uh, you look at other recommendations for other groups, the Spanish Long Association, they talk about group A and B. The group B is because they have high eosinophils, but A could be without the high eosinophils. We thought that that was confusing more, the water, Uh, And I would just try to remind you, ask your patients, talk to your patient, get clinical information.
1: One more muddy question for you. Let's say that you have a patient who has a history of chronic bronchitis, but you perform your PFTs and the spirometry is completely normal. Do you start bronchodilators on this patient or do you wait? What's your recommendation?
0: Uh, You're talking about patients who do have history, exposure, has spirometry that is 100% normal, and have no symptoms. Those patients, we don't know what to do with them. Uh, Those patients, today, the recommendation is watch them. Uh, Having said that, there is a randomized control study that is beginning. This is part of the pulmonary research networks that have been developed by the National Institute of Health that patients are going to be randomized, specifically the patient that you mentioned, to receive a fixed lava llama or nothing, and be are going to watch for five years. The objective will be to see what's going to happen with the lung function. What we're learning from COPD gene is that at the end of the day is all these factors that contribute to COPD, like smoking. Smoking cessation by itself may stop the progression of that disease. And it's easier to say, it, to do it, so I am 100% convinced that every single of my patients who continue to smoke, they want to stop, or they can. Just imagine, you know that something's going to hurt you. They know, and they are affecting there. But this is so powerful that they can stop. So our job has to tell them, every time we see them, listen, you must stop smoking, and I have the tools to help you when you are ready. But that has to be part. So then that individual, that you mentioned, uh, no pharmacotherapy is indicated today, but smoking cessation, exercise, that should be part of that intervention.
1: I think it's a good time to transition to talking some about readmission. You know, Reducing 30-day readmission rates for patients with COPD has been a huge focus of local hospitals, pretty much everywhere, CMS, uh, but it's been a challenge. Have you implemented any practices that have helped reduce that readmission rate in your institution?
0: Yes, we are in the same boat, like everybody else, because we are of care to death, one, to be penalized, and two, to be published. One of the, we have instituted in our facility, is we want to be sure that the patient has a diagnosis of COPD. What we're going to see as a COPD readmission is because the individual did have COPD and have COPD exacerbation, so we do a spirometry in our institution. And if they don't have COPD, we scratch the diagnosis of COPD there. Now, it's a bit more challenging than we thought. Let's say the people who does have a COPD exacerbation. I was working with an institution in Barcelona and Spain. And what they did, because they all were in the same boat, they had been penalized. So they have now an extended provider group that will follow these patients in their home. They will verify the patient has their medication Take the medications in the right way, they do everything that way. and guess what? The rate of exacerbation did not decrease. The rate of stayed the same, even with that intervention. The intervention they have demonstrated for them who decreased exacerbations, they noticed a lot of their COPD patients had a lot of dental problems. They had a lot of dental disease. So, what is part of the protocol now when patients with COPD gets admitted, they get evaluated by the dentist. And the dentist start doing recommendations and interventions there that are continued when they go home. And that intervention will have significant decreased remission rates. It may not be only be the COPD. In a lot of those patients, maybe the heart failure, maybe the reflux, maybe the associate diagnosis. And, you know, have them take a look at their tooth. I tell my, my residents, listen, take a ton of and take a look at their mouth. In the clinic, the only person who uses ton of depressants is me. So Definitely. my nurses know that I have to have the tone depressors in the room. And they tell me, nobody else uses it. Well, I don't care what other people do. <laughs> but I take a look at the patient's mouth. Uh, I think it's important that's because we're finding that yeah. that has been linked to that the patients coming back because they're aspirating, they're having exacerbations, and that's what we're having to progress.
1: I think that's so powerful. As an inpatient provider, I forget that patients take these diseases home with them. Um, and I thought a really powerful story that you shared was the patient who uh, had COPD, went to pulmonary rehab and came to see you, and she looked different. Uh, can you tell us that story?
0: So you know, uh, pulmonary rehab are a wonderful place for people to structure exercise. And we, in our concept is, yes, Ms. Johnson, you're going to go on rehab. We're going to be able to do more. We're going to monitor you. You have your pulse oximeter. You don't have to worry. You get short of breath. We can put it in the side. But that's not what pulmonary rehab is all about. Pulmonary rehab is having individuals who have the same condition sitting next to each other and talking. So how do you do about this? How do you handle being short of breath every day? I cannot tell them. I'm not short of breath. i never experienced that. But they can experience that. So this lady walks into my office and tells me what is different on me. And, you know, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't even figure it out when my wife gets her hair done. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't even look those stuff. So I knew from the minute she asked the question, I was in trouble. I was different on her. In the pulmonary rehab, somebody went to the support group uh, online, and they found these glasses that the oxygen goes through the glasses, comes in the top of the nose, underneath the glasses, and that's how they receive the oxygen. She did not have her cannula on her face. I've been had used to see her like that for many, many years. So for her, it was so important to know people looking into that and stare at her every time she walks in because she had this in her face. To have these glasses, the, the cannula comes underneath the glasses, and then she can have as normal life as possible. So interaction, learning how to cope with life, this is probably, and I, can, I cannot imagine how many other conversations they have on a single a daily basis that are changing their life. And that's the value of, of pulmonary rehab.
1: At the time of discharge, we encourage all our patients to have close outpatient follow-up. But unfortunately, a lot of our patients have issues with transportation. Where do you see the future of telemedicine in the treatment of COPD?
0: Yeah. Uh, so the telemedicine, uh, if an area that is going to have a huge impact is that one. I can see it in the near future to will take care of the role of, the start, instead of having some provider go to the patient home to verify that he's doing better, telemedicine will provide us this objective uh, assessment of the patient. And if you can see it right there, no, Mr. Johnson, you are not doing better. You need to come in now, not to wait until you get much worse. Because you know, patients tend to, to wait. We unfortunately learned that lesson in asthma that patient lose their ability to assess their severity, and that's what the asthma action plans are. Use your peak flow, your peak flow is not getting better, you need to come. I don't care how you feel because you may not do it well and you may do bad. Uh, having the opportunity to see your patient through telemedicine and assess them, assess their compliance of the medications. Show me how you use your medication. Things like that could be a five-minute communication with the patient. I can see can have a huge impact.
2: One thing you said this morning I thought was great. So t- talk to me about we still hear all the time, a patient has cardiovascular disease and they're on a beta blocker. There's still a lot of people hesitant to start a LAVA. And you completely dispelled that this morning. Is that right?
0: Yes. So for me, it's very easy to stand in front of you in 2018 because not only efficacy, or safety of these medications. Just think about this. tiotropium has been available for 18 years. This 18 years, we have a huge amount of data. Cardiovascular disease is present in 70% of patients with a COPD, and it's easy. They're both precipitated by cigarette smoking. So I tell my, my uh, providers, if your patient has a diagnosis of cardiac disease, You are giving the patients uh, beta blockers, have high blood pressure, and don't have the diagnosis of COPD in your chart is because you have not looked for it. You have not done spirometry because it's very likely they're going to have COPD. Mm. And once you find they have COPD, you scratch your head and say, oh, how am I going to treat it? Is it safe for me to use these bronchodilators when I need to give the beta blockers? And we know today all the, the new generation beta blockers And the new long-acting bronchodilators are safe to be given together. And what you're doing is you maximize the treatment of COPD and maximize the treatment of the cardiovascular condition. So these two can go hand by hand. Let's talk
2: about treating exacerbations for a minute. One of the briefly hot-button issues in our group was when you're being admitted for a COPD exacerbation, do you continue the home long-acting inhalers.
0: So the treatment of COPD exacerbation has to be a package that you offer your patient and the package that you're going on a cruise. You're going to go on a cruise for a week. You're going to be three days at sea. Uh, The cruise are going to offer you meals, activities that you have choice to take it or not take it. You don't take it and you're very bored sitting in a chair, you know, (laughs) busy, you know, watching stuff. Well, so I do the analogy to the package because exacerbation has to do. Access to oxygenation. Uh, patient comes, a little more short of breath, do it. I walk them down the hall and they decide they should leave your office with supplemental oxygen or be admitted to the patient. Uh, you're going to ask yourself, do I need to give systemic corticosteroids? Do I need to give antibiotics? Third, you need to give bronchodilators. So you need to give rescue bronchodilators, short active, no more often every three to six hours to help the acute bronchospasm and maintain the long-acting bronchodilators or use long-acting bronchodilators. If they get admitted to the ICU, for example, we have now available nebulized budeson and Formodoro that patients can receive in those settings. If the patient gets admitted to the floors, have them continue their maintenance medications because they'll be more likely to be discharged on the maintenance medications. But there's a lot of ways in the system of miscommunication a lot of studies found, uh, and this study was actually done in Canada. Patients who get admitted for they have COPD, they get admitted for any reason to the hospital, they are more likely to leave the hospital on albuterol and ipratropium, along with any of their maintenance medications. So, continue their maintenance medication what they are in the hospital will guarantee that they will be discharged on those medications. Mm-hmm. So they get admitted because they have a hypertensive crisis or get admitted because in growing toenail and happen to have COPD, continue their maintenance medications while they are in the hospital.
3: because so that's going to do, he or she is going to go home with those medications. But I know we were talking about COPD exacerbators and you mentioned assessing oxygenation in that patient cohort. But let's take the patient that comes to your office, not in an acute exacerbation. Historically, we we, we based our oxygenation treatments on the, the NOT trial and the MMRC trial. Yeah. As you well know, last year we had the LOT trial, long-term ox- oxygen treatment trial come out. For those patients who are still desaturating with exertion in your office, who may do a six-minute walk, uh, exercise, oximetry, et cetera, how do you approach those patients? Because this has become a major cultural shift in terms right. of do we truly withhold oxygen from that cohort yep. of patients?
0: So, uh, we were part of the Lot study. Uh, and uh, the Lot study, we have some challenges. Originally, it was planned okay, you have any form of disease, and your SATs drop from ninety-two, from uh, for your baseline SATs are above 90 and drops more than four points. Uh, and yes, and did you receive oxygen or not, randomized to placebo. Uh, sample size have to be changed. Patients have to be changed because uh, we couldn't find that pure patient population. At the end of the day, we have a population of individuals that the SATs dropped four points, uh, up to 88%, and giving supplemental oxygen did not have any impact in quality of life, Survival, that was the primary issue uh, in the in the study, uh, as well as exacerbation of any other variables. So, um, what I have found in my practice is I don't think patients want to be in supplemental oxygen. So, this is one of the things that they are less likely to be willing to have. So, having that patient to, I make them walk to a six-meter walk, came at 92, 93, and go down to 88, 87. Uh, you know, I used to feel very guilty if I don't give him oxygen because I said, gosh, you know, he should be on supplemental oxygen. I don't know how lower he drops. Uh, and the truth is he or she may not drop lower and giving supplemental oxygen would not make a difference. Having said that, in those patients, what I do, I set them up for a nocturnal oxygen monitor. And if that nocturnal oxygen monitor comes back again, little bit of 88, 80s here and there, I, um, I think I tell you, you're fine. You don't need oxygen. But that nocturnal oxygen comes, you had a lot in the 70s and 60s. You need a sleep study and you need supplemental oxygen. <laughs> so it really gives me like a gateway to look into other reasons why the patient may need oxygen at night, but also make me feel very comfortable. Don't make me feel guilty that I don't send Mr. Jones home because his SAT drops to 88, uh, on oxygen, because we know now from a lot of studies it's not going to have any benefit at all.
1: You're talking about COPD and emphysema. What do you think is the role of the lung volume reduction surgery and lung transplantation? I feel like those things maybe just need to be mentioned yes. in this topic. So, uh,
0: a lung transplantation should be in the patient's table. A uh, patient's patient, patient had very severe disease. If you look today in 2018, the percentage of lung transplant patients who had COPD is less than 5%. Pharmacotherapy works. And that has allowed many patients that don't need it to go to transplantation. The bulk lung transplantation today is fibrosis, uh, interstitial lung disease. But that may change in the near future, having all these medications. Uh, so it should be addressed. But there's going to be these patients that I mentioned before who has primarily emphysema. We cannot make them better. So we try to find all the ways to make them better. The volume reductions study demonstrated that patients who can exercise, uh, often volume reduction can improve quality of life, can improve all of the above. And I don't find that in my patients. I, I talk to the surgeons. I discuss to the surgeons with volume reduction, be an alternative, very large bullets in upper lungs. I do it and... My, my impression is half a patient experience not changes at all in their symptoms, and as well the lung function doesn't change. The whole story may change with the valves, uh, with the endobronchial interventions. I think we are in the early steps. The first publication in New England Journal three years ago, I wrote an editorial in that paper, and my difficulty was... Patients who were enrolled for the valve were treated with albura and epitropium, even with FEV1s of 30%, so they have inappropriate pharmacotherapy. Second, those patients had significant bleeding and pneumonia, post stroke pneumonia, so the safety has been involved. We saw a paper recently being published of the second generation of valves that had 15% egg incidence of pneumothorax. So, is this one of these risk benefits? You know, I'm going to put my patient having these problems while he or she is doing well. So I, I think we're at the point that yes, these interventions are going to be very important, but we are in the developing process.
1: So, final question for you: COPD is projected to be the third leading cause of death in the United States. What are the one or two things that our listeners could do to curtail this trend in the future? Is there any hope? to stop that?
0: I think there is a lot of hope. Uh, we are beginning to see data uh, from Canada. You know, Canada is really good because everything is integrated. There is data it's a paper published in the Blue Journal last year from Vancouver that the projections are the mortality for COPD are beginning to come down and are beginning to come down, especially in individuals over the age of 70. So what tells me is that diagnosing the disease early... Intervening the disease early, that big mortality is going to decrease. And I bet you that by 2022, when we start looking again at all these numbers, COPD is not going to be the third leading cause of death because yeah, these less patients are dying. Our patients are living longer, and all this is driven by early diagnosis and aggressive uh, therapy.
1: Well, Dr. Ansueto, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to hear from your expertise about COPD. And until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.
0: Don't forget, you can treat the COPD. So treat it. Diagnose and treat it.